Hey friends, my name is Ryan Hughley. I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I want to welcome you to our podcast. We're working to build a community position to experience God in daily life. Our weekly teaching is one piece of that work. So as you listen to this week's message, my prayer is that you would hear God inviting you to respond to his love and his desire for you. For more information, you can visit ridgeline.church. Hey, it's, uh, it's good to be back. Uh, many of you know I was away last week at the uh, <clears throat> second of what will be four week-long residencies. Uh, I'm in a training program with a ministry called Healing Care um, that's based out of rural Ohio, which is as delightful as it sounds. I'm here to report. Uh, there's one Starbucks attached to a gas station that one morning had a pastry in its case, the second day had no espresso, and the third day just didn't open. <laughs> so that's how they're doing. But uh, I'm being trained in the, uh, the practice of spiritual direction, which many people are not familiar with. And uh, that's unfortunate because the truth is it's an it's a ancient and historical practice that has been present within the Christian tradition for a couple of thousand years that unfortunately, especially over uh, the last couple of hundred years within the Protestant church has really lost footing. But thankfully there's a resurgence of it coming back over the last couple of decades. And it's really the practice of sitting with someone prayerfully to help them recognize where and how God is moving in their life and how he's inviting them to respond to it. And uh, it's been an amazing process for me personally, a healing journey for me personally. And, uh, and this week away was, was really exceptional again. The theme of our residency uh, this week was surrendering to love. And so I got to spend five, six days just sitting and considering from so many different angles what that, that means. And I kept thinking about that on the one hand, and then this series that we're in this Christmas season together called Tangled, where rather than just uh, talk about the practicality of how to have a quiet time and how to have a devotional life and how to spend more time sitting with God, we're going to talk about that next week. But we've tried to look at a couple of hindrances in our life, kind of these knots that exist inside of us that are more mental and emotional than they are practical that hinder our ability to spend meaningful time with God every single day. And as I held that, and then the theme of this residency, in the other hand, all week I felt like, I know, Lord, there's some way this fits together for Sunday, or I'm hoping, because I got to preach when I get back. And, uh, and all week long, I had, like, I had a couple of different ideas, and I was like, I guess that'll do. And then literally like the last 10 minutes, of, of, the, of the residency before I left for the airport, all of a sudden, it was like the spirit of God was like, this is what I want you to say. Which I was like, thank you, God. We were really cutting it close. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so here's the, here's the problem that I think it's really important for us to lean into together uh, this morning. I would say it like this. I think it's a significant hindrance or problem in our ability to sit with God that we don't feel the depth of God's love 
nor the degree to which it holds out healing to us. I think that's a problem in our lives that we don't, and I'm not, I'm not saying if I were to ask you, like raise your hand, you don't have to raise your hand, but if I were to ask you, raise your hand if you feel God loves you. My guess is a lot of us would raise our hand because in our head we'd be thinking, well, I know God loves me, but that's not what I asked. I didn't ask, do you know? Do you believe? I believe that many of us cognitively believe what the Bible says, which is what God, is that God loves us. I think the problem is that we don't feel that he loves us. And if you're anything like me, it's very hard for you to surrender to the reality that God does love us as we are and where we are. And I think that if we really did, if we really felt like if somehow I could snap my fingers in this moment and you could feel the reality of God's love, I promise you, we would run to him every single day. There's no doubt in my mind about that. Now, I'm not saying that, <clears throat> that we don't feel his love at all. I just think that there's no way that we feel the fullness of it. And I, I was thinking about this just this morning. I feel like God gave me a really sweet picture of this for me personally. Uh, we, after almost 17 years of marriage, uh, in the last couple of months, Tammy and I finally have a home uh, we have had houses that we've lived in and they've always felt very temporary for us and we knew it was never going to be a long-term thing for us. And finally, after almost 17 years, uh, we finally have a home that we love very, very much. And one of my favorite things <clears throat> that I'm grateful for every single day is that our living room windows uh, in the morning look out to the east, which is our mountains, obviously, that are out there. And so every morning, you get to see these just beautiful sunrises come up out our living room window, which I love. And so what I realized this morning is that my roof hangs over those windows in such a way that when I'm looking at the sky, what I see is like, is like this much. And I got to tell you, this, this, that, that this much that I see is like stunningly gorgeous. This is a picture of it this morning, and it was beautiful. But then I pulled up to our ministry center right down the street, which is further west than what my house is. And as I pulled into the parking lot, I looked up and I realized that what I had not seen was how much more expansive the sky actually was and how much more I could see from a different vantage point. And as I saw that this morning, I just sensed the Spirit saying, this, this is what my love is like. You, you feel this tiny percentage of it. And I think that all of us this morning might feel some tiny percentage of it, but I believe that God wants us to experience so much more. And so the question is, how do we actually feel it more deeply? And um, I'm going to tell you, I don't exactly know. Thanks for coming. Merry <laughs> Christmas. We'll see you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> No, but what I want to do is I want to I tell you one of the most famous stories in the Bible this morning. It's a story that many, if not all of you have heard at some point and are familiar with. I want to tell you about this endlessly loving father that we all have in God. And to do that, I want to look at Jesus, maybe probably his most famous parable, the parable of what is called the prodigal son, which I think is misnamed because I don't believe that the story is ultimately about the sons. I think the story is about the father. 
and that that is what Jesus means for us to take away. And so I want to, I want to like my cards on the table. I, I don't have, I woke up this morning very, very anxious and I've been anxious all morning because I feel like I can sit here and teach you some things that cause you to think differently. I feel extremely powerless to make you feel anything. Really, the Spirit of God has to do that. But I believe that when we come to God's Word, that He speaks and He awakens our heart. And He doesn't just awaken our heart to think differently, our minds to think differently, but our hearts to feel differently. And so if we, if we could, I just want to pray before we open the Bible together and we take a fresh look at this story. And I want to pray that we would feel His love to a fuller degree. So will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father God, we, we humble ourselves before you this morning. And I, I confess that the depth of your love that is proclaimed in Scripture for me and for us is oftentimes not felt in my life. And I'm pretty confident, Lord, that that's true of all of us this morning. And so we thank you, Jesus, that you you not only told us amazing stories in your word, like the one that we'll look at this morning, but that you demonstrated the depth of your love by giving your life in our place so that we could have relationship with you. And so, Holy Spirit, we need you to cause that love and the reality of it to come alive in us in a new way. I can't do that. And not a single person in this room can force that. It's a grace. And so I ask that you would pour out a deeper realization of your gracious and merciful love in every single one of our hearts this morning, Lord. Even if we have heard and read this story a thousand times, I pray, Lord, that you would help it to come alive in us in a way that causes us to feel your love for us in a powerful and a real way. And we pray this in Jesus' loving name. Amen. Well, I want to look at this story in four acts. Okay, there's four movements, I think, that make its way through the story. The first one is what I would call the cause. It's important to understand the context that informed why Jesus tells this story. And we find that in Luke chapter 15, specifically in verses one and two. So listen to this with me. Jesus says, that, or the, uh, Luke reports this. He says, <clears throat> all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. All right, so I want you to understand what was causing this conflict that Jesus was in with the religious leaders. It all centered around the fact that Jesus had a pattern of welcoming outsiders into his midst. And it wasn't just that he was like, it's okay if you guys hang out and listen to me talk. He welcomed them to the table with him. And in that culture, in the first century, to share a meal with someone was a demonstration of acceptance. And so these religious leaders are looking at this. They're looking at Jesus constantly sharing meals with outsiders. And they're thinking like, man, this, this, this is not okay. 
This guy continues to accept and to welcome outsiders as they are. And that is not okay. If you know anything about the scribes and the Pharisees, they were very bounded set, rule-focused people. And so they're just like beside themselves with this whole thing. And so in response to what they're seeing, these religious leaders begin to complain about Jesus' behavior. And they are very, very frustrated. And so here's what I, one of the things I love about the Bible is like, I've been reading the Bible since I was a little kid, probably really started when I was like six, seven years old. I went to Christian school my whole life. My life has been flooded with Bible. I haven't always loved that. I've learned to love it in my adult years, but I've been reading the Bible for a very long time. And one thing I love is that no matter how many times I read the same thing, God's so faithful to show me something fresh and new almost every time. And so here's what I want us to focus our attention on as we make our way through this whole story. I want you to focus on the emotional component of what's taking place with each of the characters, if you will, in this story. And let's start that by thinking about the emotion that these religious leaders are experiencing. I think the easiest maybe banner to hang over what they're feeling is a pretty significant sense of frustration. And I don't know about you, as much as we love to bag on the Pharisees, I think it's pretty easy to understand their frustration. I mean, they have spent all of their life striving for perfection and faithfulness and being good and doing the right things and thinking the right way and keeping the right rules. And then Jesus is welcoming all of these outsiders, like they were the quintessential insider, but Jesus is welcoming outsiders. And they're frustrated, and I get that. And I actually think <clears throat> that if we consider the way that we're all wired up emotionally, oftentimes when we are frustrated or angry, there's all kinds of emotion sitting beneath the surface of that. See, the reality is it feels comfortable and it makes us feel in control to be frustrated and angry, but oftentimes there's something deeper beneath that. And I think that's true with the Pharisees. I think that beneath their frustration lies at least two other emotions, grief and fear. Beneath their frustration is some sense of grief because think about like, I don't know how much you know about them, but we throw stones at them all of the time. But these people knew the Bible inside and out in a way that not even the best seminarian is going to. They had memorized the vast majority of it. So they have worked their whole lives to be faithful, and Jesus is eating with the unfaithful. So in their mind, they have earned their seat at his table. And Jesus has given their seats to other outsiders. And so they are grieved by what feels unjust. And again, we should get that. But I think in addition to the grief, there is fear. Just think with me about the extent to which Jesus had completely disrupted their worldview. Again, their whole life is founded on their faithfulness. They believed that they were accepted because of their faithfulness to God. And so just imagine, as they're sitting and listening to Jesus teach, and they're watching him welcome these outsiders to his table as a demonstration of welcome in relationship. Just imagine the internal dialogue that must be taking place for them. They have to be thinking, what if everything we've thought 
has been almost entirely wrong. And I think that the scope of the implications of that reality was so massive that it was more comfortable for them to complain than to rethink the endless nature of the endless love of God. And so Jesus' response to their complaints is to tell them a story. And I find it kind of interesting that he did not choose to lead with some sort of like doctrinal treatise. I'm like, well, why don't you guys sit down? Let me explain to you the nature of grace yet again. I mean, that's for sure the way they're wired up, but that's not the way that Jesus came at them. And do you know why that is? It's because he was not just concerned with winning their minds. He wanted to capture hearts. He wanted them and he wants us to feel something. And so he tells them this story. So the second act of this is all centered around a conflict. If you have a Bible in front of you, now skip down to verse 11. It says, he also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. And so he distributed the assets to them. Now, again, when we just read that, it's easy to kind of move on to what's next, but we got to like hit a serious pause right here and consider again the emotional ramifications of what it is that would have been taking place in this moment. This man, this father, has two sons. And we first get to meet the younger son. I, I, I feel like I get this guy. I remember being young and just painfully, embarrassingly selfish and brash. And and this younger son is really only concerned with one thing. He wants to be free. His freedom and independence were paramount in his life. And so as a result, he asks for what is coming to him. And he says, man, give me, give me the inheritance that's going to be mine anyways. But now I want you to set him aside, and I want you to think about this dad for a second. Because we might miss it in the request from this son, but in this culture, which was a very high honor culture, and in the U.S., we don't live in a high honor culture. We live in a very high dishonor culture. That's like our MO. How dishonoring can we be in one day to the most people possible? So it's a very, very different culture. This was a high honor culture. Like there was no like talking back to your parents. There was no talking back to anybody. And so running through this request was a very clear message to this father. And the message was, I wish you were dead. I know some of us have some uncomfortable relationships with our parents. But imagine sitting and telling your parents that. Some of us probably have. But I want you to imagine, there's nothing in this story that conveys anything other than that this man was a loving father. And so put yourself in his shoes. And if you didn't have a loving father, I know it can be very hard for us to conceive of that, but just try with me this morning. Imagine being a loving father. 
one of your two sons comes to you and said, I wish you were dead. So give me my inheritance now. I want to be free. Now, I don't know about you, but, but my mind, because I am a dad and I have two sons, and so my, my mind would immediately begin to rehearse these precious and profound moments that I have had with my son. This is a, a picture of me and my son Ryder who left. I thought he was up here, but I just pointed wow. to a ghost apparently. <laughs> <clears throat> this is my, me and my son Ryder. We are downtown in Chicago. It's one of my favorite pictures uh, that I have with him. And I can't help but think about it when I read this story. Because as a dad, I think about all of these precious moments that would lead up to this crisis point in which my son would look me in the face and say, I wish you were dead. I want to be free of you. And so I would think about his birth, holding him as he drew his very first breaths. I would think about the hugs and the kisses, the conversations, the laughter, the joy, all of the, the happy moments that have existed. And those emotions that are pregnant within those memories, I would think about those as my son came to me and said, Dad, I, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't love you. I don't care about you. I want to skip to the part where you're dead and you give me what's coming to me. Imagine being a loving father and on the receiving end of those words. It would be to feel the pain of rejection from the one that you love the most. But to everyone's shock in this story, so again, remember Jesus is telling a story to this group of people. And to every, like, if you were listening to this, you would have been like, ooh, this dad is about to open a can on this kid. <laughs> Because this is not our culture, man. Like we watched, we watched Home Alone uh, the other night because it's Christmas and we're Christians. And so <laughs> I don't know when the last time you watched, watched Home Alone, but you're just like, Kevin needs a good shot to the mouth. Okay, <laughs> like, These kids are so disrespectful to this movie. The whole time you're just sitting there going, this is the biggest fairy tale I've ever seen. There's so many things that don't make sense in this movie. But you just think about like the way that that kid talks and you're like, whew, if I ever said that to my mom, I would have been in pain. And the people listening would have been like, all right, this, this kid's about to catch a beating. And, uh, and to everyone's shock, the dad doesn't respond in anger. He responds with appeasement, which would have been the hardest thing to conceive of for the people listening to this story. He just says, okay. And he gives him his inheritance. Which brings us to the third act that I want to call the crisis. Look with me at verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had and he traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. 
And after he had spent everything, a severe famine struck the country and he had nothing. And then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how am I dying of hunger? I I, I will get up, go to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. All right. So I don't think this is a huge shock to anybody, but this kid is given his inheritance. He travels far away. And in just a matter of days, it's gone. He squanders everything to the point of having nothing. And, and you know it's bad because he's, number one, he's taken a job. Like again, this is set in a Jewish context. So in their minds, they would have read this and heard this story as Jewish people about Jewish people. So you have to understand the degree to which it was unclean and detestable to, I mean, no one is like, you know what I want to do when I grow up? Play with pigs. Right? No one's super, I mean, unless you're, I just know that this, this week there's someone that has a long history of being a pig farmer and you're like, I loved it. Okay. Most people are not excited about the idea of living in a pig pen, having no food. So he is ritualistically, spiritually unclean as a Jewish man for this. And it's gotten so bad for him that he just wants to eat the food that these pigs are eating. So he has rejected his father geographically. He has moved to a different country. He has rejected him relationally. He has rejected him financially. And finally, he has even rejected the faith of his father. There is no manner in which this man did not reject his dad. And so he has squandered everything to the point of having nothing except some distant memory of an endlessly loving father. And not to the degree that he thinks, well, if I go back, my, my dad will surely take me back as a son. He, he, he gets like, that ship has sailed for me. I will never be his son again. But, but maybe he is gracious and merciful enough that he will allow me to be a servant. And so he begins doing what we all do when we've screwed up, which is he begins rehearsing his apology. You've done that, right? When you know you've done something wrong, And you start to think about, okay, here's how I'm going to say it. And then you start to think about what they're going to say. And it's just this whole exhausting, and he's rehearsing it. But he comes to his senses and he decides it's time for me to go home. And so he makes his return. Look at verse 20. So he got up and he went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, here comes his apology, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And so they began to celebrate. 
So again, imagine being this dad. He is given this inheritance to his younger son. His son rejects him and leaves. And since that time, there seems to be this sense in the story that Jesus is telling it, the way that he's telling it, that he wants to position this father as anxiously watching for the return of his son. And then finally, one day, he sees his son coming, limping down the road. And so imagine the flood of emotion that this father must have felt. Imagine how many days he had spent wondering, is my son dead or is he alive? Again, this was a couple of thousand years ago. It's not like he could jump on the gram and see like if his, what crazy foolishness his son was up to in his Instagram story. There's no phone. He wasn't going to like send a homing pigeon. Like he was totally cut off from this kid. So he's just left to wonder every day, man, is he dead? Is he alive? There had to have been just tear-filled nights begging God to bring his son home. There had to have been hours that he spent second-guessing his own parenting. I told Tammy this morning, I feel like 90% of parenting is learning to live with the guilt that you're doing it wrong. So if you're not a parent yet, that's what you have to look forward to. Lots of joy and lots of guilt. So you know he's got to be thinking like, man, if I would have said this, maybe I should have raised him different. Maybe I will, maybe what if, all, all of these things, rehearsing it over and over and overing. But all of that is eclipsed by one glimpse of his returning son. And he doesn't wait, and he doesn't walk, he runs. Which again, in a high honor culture, was something that grown men did not do. It was seen as dishonorable and undignified for a man to run. But this guy knows that honor doesn't matter when it comes to your kid. And so he takes off running down the road. And so now put yourself in the position of the son. He's made this long journey home, and we, we all know he's just rehearsing this apology over and over and over, wondering what's going to happen, wondering if his father will receive him. And one of my favorite things in the narrative is, do you notice that the father doesn't even let him finish the apology? He's not like, well, hold on, dad. I got more I want to say. Like, the dad doesn't even address his apology, which I have always found so fascinating. So this this kid's coming home. He's been working with pigs. He's had nothing. So he is coming home dirty. He is coming home disgusting. He is coming home literally starving, the story tells us. And he's just holding on to this tiny little sliver of hope. Maybe, maybe, maybe my dad will let me be a servant. And before he can even get the apology out of his mouth... All of a sudden, he's got this fresh robe on his back, a ring on his finger, and his dad's arms around him as they inevitably weep together. And as those tears soak in to the son's new robe, whatever wounds existed in his heart, had to have begun to heal because he was home. 
And as amazing as this interaction is, not everybody was super fired up about this, believe it or not. Let's finish up. Look at verse 25. Now his older son, so we finally get to meet this guy. His older son was in the field, meaning he was being faithful. He was doing what he was supposed to do. And as he came near to the house, he heard the music and the dancing. And so he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your, your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has, he has him back safe and sound. And then the older brother became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him? Son, he said to him, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So it's interesting that where we see beauty in the father's reception of this younger brother, the older brother sees betrayal. Because he had been the antithesis of his spoiled, selfish brat of a younger brother. And so he's thinking, man, when he left, I stayed. When he ran off to do his own thing, to do whatever he wanted, my, my workload doubled. I had to do more. I was left here to pick up the pieces of your heart when he left. And so he hears this music and he smells this food and what he's feeling rightfully He's feeling, this is not fair. And that's exactly what those religious leaders felt as they watched Jesus inviting outsiders to share the table with him. They were thinking, this isn't fair. We earned our seat at the table. But in another demonstration of compassion and grace, when this father catches, wound, or catches word that his older son, or son is like standing outside ticked, he's not like, well, forget about him. My kid's home. I'm pumped. Let's party. He goes out to the, even to the older brother. And I want you to notice there's no condemnation of what he's feeling. There's no rebuke in what he says. There's just this pointed reminder that grace isn't about fair. It's about the endless love of a merciful father. That's what he wanted him to know. So here's the thing. Our, our problem is oftentimes that for many of us, love is very hard for us to both receive and to believe. Like, have you noticed that? Like, you think about, I, I, don't, I don't get like tons and tons of feedback about my preaching, but I think especially early on, there'd be times where like maybe 20 people could come up to you and they'd be like, that was so great. God really spoke to me. And I think most of the time people are just being nice. Um, 
But then there'll be that one person that usually it's through email because <laughs> it's demonic. They'll send a criticism through. And I don't, I don't know if it's just me and the way that I'm wired. I don't think it's the case. But I feel like when it comes to love and encouragement, my heart, I heard somebody say this this week, is like a sieve. And it's like it's got these, if it's a tank, it has these holes in the bottom and love and encouragement just sort of like goes right through it. It doesn't hold it. But criticism, I don't know what it is about my heart, but it just locks that away forever. And my guess is most of us, if I were to invite you up here one by one, most of us could probably talk about virtually every horrible thing that's ever, hurtful thing that's ever been said to us because we lock those things away. But there's something about, even in hearing this story, and the whole point, if you didn't pick up on it, is like, God's the Father. And we're the sons. And some of us have squandered some portion of our lives in foolish living. Some of us have done things that have caused us tremendous shame. Some of us have experienced at the hands of another things that have caused us tremendous shame. And we can't conceive that God our Father in the midst of our shame could love and accept and welcome us. And some of us are the older brother where we're like real good obeyers and we do all the right things. And we think the reason that God loves us is because we do the right things. Both of those lines of thought are inaccurate. God does not withhold his love from us because we are outsiders or sinners. And he does not pour out his love on us because we obey. He is a merciful father who loves us endlessly because of grace. And it's very hard for us to just rest in that. Man, all week, I just kept thinking about a couple of weeks ago, Matt and Didi, who many of you know, they brought over baby Oliver so that we could watch him so they could go out to breakfast for, I think, like 17 minutes is about how long they were gone. (laughs) But we had Oliver's right before nap time. And, um, and I, I pride myself as being like a little bit of a baby whisperer, okay? I suck at a lot of things. I'm good with babies. <clears throat> and so uh, it was time for, for Oliver to go to sleep, and, and it was his first time with us. And so, I mean, he was like, this kid was like alert, okay? Just like taking it all in, tense as I held him, to the extent that finally, like I just, I, he was like, you know, I remember this with my kids too, when you're like trying to put a baby to sleep which is good for them, right? It's not like you're trying to drown them in a tub. You're like, I just want you to rest. That's all I'm trying to get you to do. And they like are doing that thing where they pull away. I remember all my kids doing that until they were like seven. <laughs> and so I, I went into, uh, into our bedroom and we have uh, a closet that the door shuts and it's like pitch black. And I was like, I need to shut off the sensory overload this kid's experiencing. And still, it was like a good six, seven minutes of just feeling like I am 
tired from wrestling this four-month-old baby. He is very strong, <coughs> like his mom. I've been crossfitting with his mom. She a beast, and this kid got it all. And so he kept struggling and struggling and struggling, and then finally I felt this like, <sighs> and he rested his head, and he was asleep. And all week long, I've been thinking about <laughs> this few minutes of my wrestling with Oliver trying to get him to rest and to go to sleep. And every time that memory came to mind, the Spirit of God said the same thing. He said, this is exactly what you're like with my love. And all I want you to do is just rest your head And for some reason, that's really hard for me. And I wonder if it's not also really hard for you. you know, I'm bent in a way where I'm constantly trying to display my lovability. Constantly trying to help God see God. Look, look, at, how, look at how faithfully I'm trying to serve. Look at how hard I'm trying to work. God, do you see, I'm, I'm trying so hard to be a good husband and dad. I'm trying hard to be a good pastor. And I know that I fail miserably at all of these things at times. But Lord, do you see how hard I'm working in all of this? And I just continue to hear this endlessly loving father going, would you just rest your head? I don't love you because of how hard you're working in any of those things. I love you. Because I love you. And the more you rest, the more faithful you will actually be. And so here's the way I'd summarize what I'm trying to get across this morning. Every time that we sit with God, which again, we'll talk about the practicality of that next week. Every time we sit with God, our hearts come home to his healing love. Every time we sit with God, our hearts come home to his healing love. And I wonder if you think about your time with God that way. When we sit down, we open a Bible or a journal or we get ready to pray, do we think of what's happening as, Lord, I am coming home to your love that I know is going to heal me more and more from the inside out. Doesn't that seem so much better than just checking the box on whatever four chapters you're trying to get through that day? It's possible. It doesn't have to feel like a to-do. It can feel like coming home. And the first step in that becoming a reality is choosing to rest your head in and on his love. So that's my best crack at hopefully helping you feel a little bit more about how much God loves you. And I'm telling you, whether you feel it or not, he loves you so much more than you think.
and so much more than you believe. And so what we have to do is we just have to step out in trust and go, Lord, I don't necessarily feel this all of the time, but I'm going to try to trust you and I'm going to just try to rest my head on your love. And so that's what I want to invite you to. Let's learn to do that together. Because as we do, we will heal and we will be formed into the image of Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for loving me. And I thank you that you love each of us. And not because we're always lovable and not because we're always faithful and not because we're so good all of the time. Lord, it, I just, maybe the most difficult thing about you to wrap my head around is that you just love me because you love me and that I could never outrun it I could never get away from it. I could never disqualify myself from it. You just have chosen to set your love on me and you have chosen to set your love on each of us. The sheer fact that we are in this room this morning is an evidence of your love for us. You brought us here. Help us feel how much you love us. So Lord, I just want to pray a special blessing over every single person in this place that has not been loved well in their life. Lord, many of us carry wounds because the people in our lives who should have loved us well did not. And they said hurtful things. They did hurtful things. Or they abandoned us. Or they abused us. And as a result of that, we can't conceive of how anyone, especially you, could truly love us. But your word says that you do. Jesus has demonstrated that you do. And so, Holy Spirit, I just pray that somehow you would open our hearts to receive healing love from you this morning. And if there's anyone here that has never surrendered their life to your love, to your sacrifice, to your leadership and lordship, God, I pray that they would surrender to you. We need you. Help our hearts to come home to you this morning and every day moving forward. In Jesus' name, amen.